0: This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And now it's time for our This Day in History segment, which is, as always, brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College. And if you can't get to Hillsdale, Hillsdale can most certainly come to you with their terrific and free online courses. Go to hillsdale.edu. That's hillsdale.edu. And now it's time for us to tell you the story of Vladimir Horowitz. Because on this day in history in 1928 the great Russian pianist, made his debut in America at Carnegie Hall. And today our own Alex Cortez brings us this story.
1: James Hilton wrote, If by some dispensation a man born deaf were to be given hearing for a single hour, he might well spend the whole time with Horowitz.
2: For more than 50 years, the challenged but never dethroned monarch of the piano keyboard has been Vladimir Horowitz. When he arrived in America in 1928, his brilliance, Dazzled amid a firmament of pianistic giants, which included Hoffman and Rachmaninoff, the wizard from Kiev roared over the keys with such precision and speed, he caused the experts to doubt their ears. When Horvitz played in Paris in the 20s, the gendarme had to be called to restrain an insatiable audience, which had begun to tear up the furniture. Now, 50 years later, and thousands of appearances later, fans still queue in the streets for days in the hope of hearing the wizard at work. The results are always the same. An emotionally exhausted audience yelling for more and critics looking for new adjectives. Vladimir Horovitz's consummate skill, scholarship and demonic fervor have made him the most fascinating and admired pianist in history. No pianist anywhere surpasses him in drawing power and his fees are the highest in the land.
3: Tell me one other solo performer in classical music who gets 80% of the gross, which is what Vladimir Horowitz gets. But I didn't do it my whole life. After 50 years playing, I got this. You get three times as much as any other classical performer today, I am told. And you smile when I tell you that because you know it's the truth
4: and you're proud. I'm not proud, but it is so. And he didn't even want to be a pianist not as a career he wanted to be something else and felt this desire all the way up to his death despite being the most famous pianist of the 20th century and one of the greatest in human history
5: you know i must tell you something in in some way all we're sitting here some Every one of us has some kind of a little frustration. Everyone. Where in one way we are happy, in another way we are unhappy. That's the human being is born like that. I have my own, You, you think I have everything now. Oh, he's the greatest in the world, he's making money, he's starving. But I wanted to be a composer.
4: A composer. A dream of a young boy from Kiev, the present capital of Ukraine, but then a part of Russia, and a dream that was robbed from him by one of the most infamous revolutions. And
5: then we had the little revolution.
4: (laughs) He laughs, because otherwise he'd have to cry. The Russian Revolution was led by communist Vladimir Lenin, who would go on to kill four million of his countrymen through executions, death camps, and state caused famine. I'm from well to family, you see. My father was a very
5: important engineer.
4: And because of that, their Jewish heritage was ignored unlike most Jews who were forced to relocate to what was called the Pale of Settlement that was in Western Russia but when the revolution came his father's great success was no longer his greatest asset it became his greatest liability
5: he lost everything
4: the communists took it all vladimir horowitz later recounted my family lost everything in 24 hours i saw with my own eyes how they threw our piano from the window he was a teenager suddenly without anything and he did something about it I start to give concerts
5: and so that they gave me my education now i have to give them back
4: something too and so i played till today those concerts would immediately help out his family, whereas composing wouldn't. And so away it went.
5: So in a way, I'm a frustrated composer.
4: And for many of his first concerts, the compensation was rather antiquated, being paid in bread, butter, and chocolate, the so-called revolution was more like a devolution it caused the value of the ruble the russian currency to collapse bringing russians back to the relic of history known as bartering trading one good or service for another but that didn't stop vladimir in the 1922 to 23 music season he was especially active
5: 23
4: sites with 11 bro it's amazing A one-year repertoire that's virtually unheard of mastering 11 different programs to take to the public and he was 19 and when
0: we come back more of this terrific story and it's why we love love doing this days in history here on our American stories Vladimir Horowitz's remarkable pilgrimage to the mecca of music in the world Carnegie Hall where he debuted and made his American debut in 1928. and this is Our American Stories, and we return to our This Day in History segment, as always brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College. And when we left off, Vladimir Horowitz was still a young man in Russia, being subjected to the evils of Lenin's comings.
4: And in 1925, Vladimir requested and received a student visa to study with the renowned pianist Arthur Schnabel in Berlin. At least, that's what he told the Soviet government he would do. And I
5: smuggled some dollars. I remember I put it in the shoes and I started my career in Europe
4: with my own money. He would never become a student. And yet... The Soviets selected him to represent Ukraine in an international piano competition and he responded, no thank you, I like the West here just a little bit better, I think I'll stay here. And in fact, he so desired the West over Russia that when he ventured over to America, it loomed over the entirety of his debut in our country at Carnegie Hall on January 12th, 1928. My debut
5: with Tchaikovsky concerto, which I choose to play, I knew that I can make such a wild sound and such a speed and such a noise and Mm -hmm. such a things that the public will be completely crazy. (laughs) And I wanted to do it, but subconsciously, it was in order to have success, not to return to my country. I wanted to get success in the whole world, just not to get back because
4: there I had my success. If I would not have success in Europe and America, I had to go back. He didn't have to go back. And for the rest of his life, made these United States his home. It was a debut unlike any other. The New York
1: Times reported that the piano smoked at the keys. And that during most of the intermission, the audience continued to applaud and to call the pianist back to the stage.
4: The New York Times reporter Olin Downs continued, describing the reception as the wildest welcome a pianist has received in many seasons in New York. and describing the performance as a whirlwind of virtuoso interpretation, amazing technique, irresistible youth, electrifying temperament, a tornado unleashed from the steps.
1: Robert Lieberson wrote, With a generosity not always typical of performing artists, a great pianist friend of mine said to me concerning the recent debut of a certain pianist, debut? Debut? There has been no debut since that of Vladimir Horowitz. That was a debut.
5: My manager at that time, he gave order that in intermission, nobody should come to the artist because it will disturb me and things like that. Just to be completely quiet and um, not to talk and so on and so on. So in the intermission, my manager said that nobody should come. But then he said, that listen, there is one man absolutely crazy. He's a company, a company of, I don't know, some symphonies or violinists and his name is so on and so on. He wants to come just for three seconds just to kiss you because he said that he never heard anything like that. So I said, oh, for three seconds all right, you kiss me that that's fine. So I remember I'm lying on the couch and resting a little bit before the second half it was very difficult. He's calling them, oh, Vladimir, that was something absolutely incredible. And we never heard the all audiences tell, and please go your own way. Don't listen what the other people tell. Because for instance, I heard Hoffman who said that the second ballad was not completely right, and the Rachminers didn't like the fourth ballad so much, and the so but don't listen to them. You just go your own way. <laughs> <laughs> I will never forget that. <laughs>
6: Don't
4: listen up. Just go your own way. <laughs> Vladimir Horowitz would go his own way, and with almost everything in life, for instance, he would only play his Steinway piano. If I don't
5: have a good instrument, I cannot do it that's why i go with my own piano when i travel not to have surprises to have a piano which i don't know
4: he trekked his piano to every single one of his concerts even if it was across the country in san francisco or across that little ocean all the way over to paris one of the only pianists to ever go to such lengths
5: This time we have something like 10,000, 11,000 parts. The most important, you have to take care of piano like you take care of yourself. It's like a human organism. You have to check it every month from humidity to cold, to think, everything change. You have to have a voicing man who comes. And Where do you have there in small city? You don't have it. And the demand from here cannot go everywhere and check it, you know, so has to be regulated all the time,
4: the piano, so that's why I have my own piano. Here's Gino Francisconi, the archives and museum director of Carnegie Hall, on how it was like on the other end, being a venue handling Horowitz's piano demands.
7: When Horowitz would come, he would bring his own Steinway piano from home, and he would drive our stagehands a little crazy by asking them to move the piano around the stage. And the stagehands noticed every time he said, I'm happy where it is, it was almost pretty much in the same spot. And so, what one of the stagehands decided to do was to put three nails to designate the three different legs of the piano so that the next time they wouldn't have to go through this. So, Horowitz would arrive. And he would do the same thing. No, I'm not happy with it here. And he would have the stagehands move the piano around the stage until he said, yes, I'm happy with it here. And it was always over the nails.
4: So remarkably precise and willing to go his own way with his preciseness that Horowitz insisted his concerts be at 4 p.m. on Sunday, not on a weekday, not on a Saturday, or an evening as is often done, 4 p.m. on Sunday, and that is it.
5: We're living in very strange times. But there is lots of pressure, lots of tension on everybody. The traffic is very easy, but lots of noise. You know, the distance are great. And um, usually the man is working and the woman is in the house a little bit but she has lots of work now too it's not so leisurely so in the evening i think people are less relaxed and more tired when the husband comes at 6 30 7 o'clock sometime from the office that tired and the concert starts in one hour so so you mm, Bob, Bob, bo, you know, dress, dress fast, 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 take your showers and dinner like that. We have to go with Miss, you know. He has no time even to breathe. He goes to the concert and he rests and goes to sleep. You know. <laughs> it makes no difference what you play. He's too tired, you know. You have to be relaxed. Because a concert is a give and take. If you don't concentrate the listener, then the performer cannot do anything very much too.
8: And you think today they'll concentrate better in the afternoon?
5: I think in the afternoon they are more relaxed, because it's a Sunday, they have nothing to do, and they go to church, but that's not so, you know, taxing. They come back, 3-4 o'clock, they are much more relaxed.
7: Mm-hmm.
5: From my point of view, it's the same thing. I hate to wait the whole day, the concert. The day becomes for me too long. But that 8.30 in the evening, you know, and then you finish the concert at 11, and the... Uh, nerves are wind up and you don't sleep well and th- things like that at 6 everything is finished you have your friends after that and think at 11 it's all forgotten and you sleep like a baby and it's finished you know too and the mind I think afternoon we are in our best you know all of us
0: and when we come back more of this remarkable story this great this day in history story here on our American Stories And this is Our American Stories. We continue with this remarkable story of Vladimir Horowitz's American debut at Carnegie Hall back in 1928. And again, you just got to remember that this was the equivalent of an international rock star. It's like Bono coming to town for the first time. This is how big a force Horowitz was in the anticipation. And again, as always... All of our This Day in Histories are brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College. Let's return to the Horowitz story.
5: My father-in-law said that all the geniuses, the cannot be geniuses 24 hours. We
4: have have, have very weak works of Beethoven and Mozart too, you know. (laughs) And being a genius, His practice wasn't like how most would practice, but perhaps should be.
5: You see, I believe that if you practice too long time and you repeat mechanically difficult places of music, you know, which are not in hand and you want to make it clear that every finger is given. If you repeat it all the time and finally you do it, it becomes mechanical and you repeat hundred times at home. And you go on the stage, you repeat it on the first time. It becomes mechanical. So I believe, and I like brushing the teeth, you know, I believe to to do it every day, but not too long. I don't practice more than one hour and a half. Never, but I never miss a day. You You never miss a day. When I'm on the stage, I'm one person. When I'm out of the stage, I'm another person. When you're on the stage. When I'm on the stage, I feel I'm a king. I'm a king. On the stage? Yes, nobody has to interfere with him because I have something to do and I have to bring the best which is in me. Sometimes I do it better, sometimes that's good, like any human being. You see, for me, the success is silence, not the applause after a work? No, during the during oh. play. When it's silent, that means they are taken. No coughing. No coughing, and they hold the coughing even if they die, you know? <laughs> because they are taken by the emotional impact.
3: People were literally breathless.
4: Here Vladimir Horowitz is with a radio interviewer in 1975, on the role of the performer.
3: In other words, a, a man can't say a performer can't say that he really does not let any of himself come through; that he well, is just
4: you, you, he has
5: to. He is the he is the liaison, his uh, French yeah. word, mm-hmm. middleman between the composer and the public. Yeah, he, he is interpreting the law. interpreting the law. I am the lawyer.
4: (laughs) (laughs) And to interpret a piece, you first try to get inside the mind of the composer. So how did Horowitz do that?
5: I don't like to read anything about somebody. I like to read their own letters and their own opinions. And I read very little. In books about it because there's so much garbage. <laughs> Pardon me, terrific amount of
4: exploitation, you know, not true. Here's Horowitz on one of his all time favorite letters by the famous Polish composer, Frederick Chopin.
5: You see, Chopin in his letter. He was teaching, and he tells when somebody of my pupils comes and wants to and play some work of my own, and wants to imitate my own playing, I send him home. Because I want him to bring something that I don't know myself. It should be different. Because I myself never played twice the same way. Never. That is a Chopin letter. So I can say the same thing. I'm not surprised, but I can say the same thing. I never play twice the same way. Never. I know that people who travel with me and heard that same humorous, with you talking, I play five times completely different. So I would like what I am doing that, but I will say, no, I would not play like that today. Or this part I will play differently. This part is good, this part not, this. I don't know. It's not subconsciously, it's uh, what you call subconsciously, I call it
4: intuition. Horowitz adopted Chopin's philosophy. The composer's score and their letters were a reference point, but that is it, he declared. Because the score is not a Bible, I am never afraid to dare. The music is behind those dots. You search for it, and that is what I mean by the grand manner. I play, so to speak, from the other side of the score, looking back. His most famous interpretation is when he eventually stopped playing entirely, he was on to the next risk, and he would never take the greatest risk of them all, becoming stale as a performer. So he was always moving on, but this decision did not stop the popular demand for him to play it. Just take one example. Here's CBS's Mike Wallace in 1977 trying to goad it out of him in a television interview.
5: you love this country I love this country.
3: Do you love this country enough, maestro, to respond to a request for you to play something that you haven't played in many, many years in public?
5: Yeah, but I don't know it. I, I, I don't. You know what I'm going to ask you? Yes, I know, because you ask me
3: all the time. The Stars and Stripes Forever. Is you it? played that back in 1945.
5: On the I Am an American Day. That's right. Central Park. I like this much, but it's very hackneyed and badly played by the band. Because they played three times as fast because, you know, Military march is a walking march. Yes. But you cannot play. You don't walk like that. Also right. walk like that. They completely spoiled the thing because it's much more classic than it is. Are you because enough of a patriot? No, I forgot that. I You've didn't play come for. Come on, you have not forgotten 20, it. I tell you, I don't know it. But I have to
3: remember, it's so difficult. I'm sure that it's difficult. Go ahead, go (laughs) on from
8: there.
3: How long, long, Maestro, has it been? 20 years? 30 30 years since you've played that.
4: A long time in a long career of 67 years, but one that had many long interruptions.
8: He retired from
3: 36 to 39, and then 52 to 65, 12 years away from the stage, and then 69 to 74, now that's 22 years together. That kind of retirement creates a mystique in itself, doesn't Mm -hmm. it? And he took advantage of it, very cleverly.
4: Here's one example of its effect.
3: He said when he came to Toronto in 1975 that it was as if a ghost was
9: visiting your city.
4: And no wonder, given the rumors that whirled around this ghost, And after the break, we'll
0: hear what those rumors were and why Vladimir Horowitz hid himself away from the public for so many years. This is Our American Stories, Vladimir Horowitz's story, his debut, his American debut, at Carnegie Hall in 1928. Our This Day in History series continues after these messages. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we return to the final portion of our This Day in History segment on Vladimir Horowitz, the greatest pianist of the 20th century, but whose life wasn't always so great, and included very, very long absences from the public.
4: Here Horowitz is, again, with CBS's Mike Wallace. And then the rumors began.
5: And then the rumors began, I'm in he a house. He's, you
3: know? a, he's institutionalized, he's afraid of the piano. Listen,
5: Horowitz has gone mad. This in those 10 years, I did six, seven records. How can I get mad if I made the recording? <laughs> no. But how did
3: the rumors start?
5: You see, America likes bad news, they don't like good news. (laughs) The headlines are always bad news, you sell the paper. (laughs) If it's good news, you don't sell the paper.
4: Vladimir Horowitz did battle depression throughout his career, receiving electroshock treatment for it, and stating that it was the reason for his longest absence of 12 years, in addition to the demands of touring, getting to him. Here's more of Mike Wallace with Horowitz this time along with his wife Wanda.
3: In the 12 years that he didn't play. Yeah. In the 12 years yeah. from 1953 to 65. Oh, this babe, you were in this room very happy. Babe. And you, madame? Not so happy. But you stayed here. Oh yes, I did. You know what happened when he played fine in 1965? What? He came out and there was a big line of people on both sides of Carnegie Hall. And somebody said, "Oh, Mr. Horowitz, we stood in line all night." And I said, "You know what? I stood in line for 12 years. Uh-huh. It must have been a difficult 12 years for you." Yeah, because you see, from time to time you would say, "I will never play again." I said, "Fine. Very fine." And my heart was singing to my feet. But it would say, fine, fine. If you don't want think
5: I was doing the records, as I told you before. Yes, you keep saying you
3: were doing the records. The but fact that... is, you did not face the public for 12 years. Yeah. Yes, it's a fact. And on one occasion, i told, you didn't leave the house for two years, and you almost never left his side. For six months, I never went out with his house, the first
6: six months.
4: Two years for him and six months for her, within the same four walls. Leonard Bernstein, the famed American composer who wrote the music for West Side Story and Peter Pan, wrote this in a letter to Wanda Horowitz upon Vladimir's passing, Quote, I send you loving sympathy, but let me add my admiration for you in your long years of devotion to this amazing man. He was not only a super pianist, but a super musician with all the mental fallibilities such geniuses have. You cared for him and guarded him through a series of neurotic crises the world may never know nor understand. And you returned him to us time and again, refreshed, renewed, and ever greater. including the very last time. In 1985, Vladimir returned from a two-year absence for what would be his final four years on this earth. And many of the critics, like the New York Times' Harold Schoenberg, called them his best musical years. And in 1986, in the wake of the Soviet Union's increasing liberalization, he announced a return tour to his homeland for performances in Moscow and Leningrad. His first time back since 1925 to the communist-controlled society that had taken everything from his family. And that he vowed never to visit again.
5: I didn't see my, my family for six years. I don't know how they look, how they are. When I left Russia, my niece was nine years old, now 70.
4: His niece met him at his Moscow performance, along with this rousing crowd. (laughs) The New York Times reported that Horowitz worried his eccentric style might be unwelcome in the bland communist society of forced uniformity. Maybe my playing will seem strange to these people, he said. Maybe I am too romantic. Now Horowitz might have been right about those government officials, but he was certainly wrong about his people.
8: And then I spent all the night here because I wanted to get the ticket by all means, but afraid to miss it. From my
4: childhood, it was my dream to hear Horowitz in you know, life. I have got
6: many records, and now my dream will come true.
4: The Times reported of the Moscow performance that many in the audience cried unabashedly during portions of the recital, bringing him back on stage for six curtain calls after he had played three encores. Mr. Horowitz became something of a sensation in a city unaccustomed to his kind of flamboyance. And just three months later, then-president Ronald Reagan welcomed him back to America in a white house. House ceremony to award him the Presidential Medal of Freedom, his adopted nation's highest civil award. It's good to have you back with us in the United States. You know, the meetings between artists and politicians are fraught
10: with peril. There's the story of Ulysses S. Grant, who said, I know only two tunes. One of them is Yankee Doodle, and the other isn't. (laughs) Well, not all politicians are like that, not all. I think next time I have a distinguished gathering here in this room, I'm going to have to paraphrase Jack Kennedy's line and say that this is the greatest accumulation of talent in this one room since the time I greeted Vladimir Horowitz alone. I must say it's an honor to play host to the man who, as one British critic put it, is simply the greatest pianist, dead or alive. I also like the story of Sir Thomas Beecham and jokingly criticized, who jokingly criticized your performance at a concerto saying, really, Mr. Horowitz, you can't play like that. <laughs> he said, it shows the orchestra up. <laughs> But considered by piano connoisseurs the most dazzling virtuoso since Liszt set the standard in the 19th century, you have influenced countless young pianists and inspired multitudes of listeners. I hope so. <laughs> and I'm glad that this is such a small intimate gathering because what I really wanted was the chance to thank you personally for being our emissary of goodwill to the people of the Soviet Union. Thank
6: you.
10: It's appropriate that we're together in the Roosevelt Room. What behind us here on the mantel is the first Nobel Peace Prize ever awarded to an American. It was given to Teddy Roosevelt for his part in negotiating an end to the Russo-Japanese War. A little known fact, but significant today because your recent journey to the Soviet Union was also a pilgrimage of peace. You said in an interview that your hope was to set out the good to make the good better, and you did just that. Your music spoke to the heart of the land where you were born and it spoke to all of our hearts and in the beautiful moments, you reminded all of us of our common humanity. You brought us closer as people to people, as the American people and the people who live in the Soviet Union. You were our ambassador of the heart. And for that, I want to thank you both for myself and for all of America.
4: for Our American Stories, I'm Alex Cortez.
0: And great job, as always, on that, Alex. And I love what Reagan said there towards the end. You brought us all closer. And that's what art does, and it's why we spend so much time talking about art here on Our American Stories, because it brings us all closer together. And by the way, that's everything from class to race to zip code to nation great music particularly. Everything goes away. We're not screaming and yelling and we're not arguing. We're just listening and enjoying together. And by the way, one of my favorite lines about art, well, it was uttered by Arthur Miller at Tennessee Williams funeral, both great American playwrights of the 1940s and 50s. And Arthur said of Tennessee's work, you made us feel less alone. In the end, that's what great art does. And that's what Vladimir Horowitz's art did and by the way, we love telling the story of the thin line between genius and insanity. And so many of the stories about artists that we've told showcase that fine line between the blessings of the artists and the demons that follow. And so, you just heard, and we love to celebrate our This Days and Histories, Vladimir Horowitz makes his American debut. His titanic talent made his American debut at Carnegie Hall in 1928. This is Our American Stories, and now it's time for a segment by Jesse, and you never know what you're going to get when Jesse does it. And this one's just called More Cowbell.
11: We're high up in the Swiss Alps, and that sound that you're hearing is a herd of cows wearing cowbells. The cowbell was originally intended to make livestock easier to locate if they wandered off. Different bells have different specific sounds to identify important characteristics of the animals, such as age, sex, and specific herd identification. It is difficult to pinpoint when exactly the use of cowbells began, but the earliest examples of truly recognizable cowbells date back to the Iron Age. Just as soon as they were made, cowbells, were used for music in sub-Saharan Africa. Although cowbells first appeared in American hillbilly music in the 1920s, they've also been used as an instrument in more recent popular music. The intro and ending to the 1958 track Heartbeat by the American artist Buddy Holly, a USA minor hit which reached number 82 in the Billboard Hot 100, is quite possibly the first use of the cowbell in pop music.
8: Heartbeat, why do you my baby kisses me
11: Even Jimi Hendrix used a little cowbell in Stone Free And who could forget the cowbell in Lowrider? God, this is really a good song.
5: All my friends know the Lowrider. The Lowrider is a little
11: But arguably, the most famous cowbell of them all can be found through the entire track of Blue Oyster Cult's Don't Fear the Reaper, released as a single it was their biggest hit charting at number 12 in
6: 1976.
11: now Now you probably know where I'm heading with this. To the pinnacle of Cowbell fame in modern history, on April 8th of 2000, the comedy sketch known as More Cowbell aired on Saturday Night Live featuring Will Ferrell and Christopher Walken. After a series
12: of staggering defeats, Blue Oyster Cult assembled in the recording studio in late 1976 for a session with famed producer Bruce Dickinson. And luckily for us, the
10: cameras were rolling.
6: Um,
11: Bruce, could you come in here for a second, please? That that was going to be a great track. Guys, what's the deal? Uh, Are are you sure that was
10: sounding okay? I'll be honest, fellas, it was sounding great, but I could have used a little more cowbell.
11: (laughs) This is one of the best SNL sketches of all time. Will Ferrell's acting was so over the top the Christopher Walken, Jimmy Fallon, Horatio Sands, and Chris Kattan were all trying desperately to hide their laughter on stage with very little success. I got a fever, and the only prescription is more cowbell. <laughs> Thank you, Bruce. We asked Blue Oyster Cult's drummer, Albert Bouchard, who is now a music teacher in New York City, how the cowbell made it into Don't Fear the Reaper.
1: Ironically, it was similar to what happened in the skit, Okay. It was we had put a whole bunch of uh, overdubs on the on the song, and one of them was um, uh, Randy Brecker put a the, he put a flugelhorn part on it or a trumpet or something in the in the middle part the that part. So uh, and we didn't like it. Nobody nobody in the group liked it, you know. And so uh, erased that track. So I said, hey, I want to do I want to do a triangle in that part. That's what I want. I really, I hear a triangle in my head, and they're like, and the, the uh, one of the producers, there was three, there was Sandy Perlman, Murray Krugman, and David Lucas. David Lucas was a jingle producer, and he produced uh, a lot of AT&T, reach out, reach out and touch someone, or uh, it's the Pepsi generation, I don't know, if you, you're too young. But anyway, these were big uh, uh, ads back, and he was a madman. So uh, he said, uh, okay, you can put the triangle on it, but try a cowbell. I just want to hear a cowbell. And I said, why? You think that, is the tempo not steady enough? And he goes, no, don't. The tempo is fine. It's, I just want to hear that sound. I said, okay. So I play it, and I'm like, nah, it's not working. And he's like, oh, well, put some tape around it. So I put some tape around it, and he's like, He's like, yeah, yeah, that's it. I said, I don't know. Let me try a beat, a beater. So I use like a timpani mallet, and and everybody's like, yes, that's it, that's it. So it's funny that. Uh you know, that Will Ferrell, because he wrote the skit, and it's funny that he even noticed it because it was mixed very low, you don't even really notice it in the track, you know.
4: But the last time I checked, we don't have a whole lot of songs that feature the cowbell. I gotta have more cowbell, baby.
11: More cowbell has its own Wikipedia page, remixes, tributes, and endless reenactments. It also has its very own app.
4: Just a little more cowbell.
11: If you go to Amazon right now, you can actually find cowbells with more cowbell printed on them. There's more cowbell shirts, stickers, magnets, posters, beer cozies, coffee cups, hoodies, infant clothing, license plate frames, cell phone covers, pet clothing, wall murals, keychains, tote bags, cake decorations, mouse pads. I even found a more cowbell frisbee. And that's just on Amazon. Want some women's underwear for your wife with more cowbell printed on it? More cowbell! They've got that too. Do you want an SNL Christopher Walken More Cowbell Duvet cover? Those are available too. And I don't even know what a duvet is. More Cowbell pillows. More Cowbell clocks. Cowbell. You get the picture. This humble little instrument has made quite an impact on American culture. Pretty impressive for a piece of metal that was originally intended to help keep track of livestock. For our American stories, I'm Jesse Edwards. I got a fever and the only prescription is more cowbell.
0: This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and many people in this country struggle with the issue of mental health, young and old alike. And despite how widespread these issues are, very few young people particularly feel comfortable enough to talk about their struggles with mental health. I think peer groups drive so much of this, it's hard enough for old people to do it and older people. But not so with one, one BYU quarterback, no less, Tanner Mangum. Tanner broke this trend in an in-depth Instagram post of all places, telling the world about his struggle with mild depression and anxiety. We interviewed Tanner about his battle with depression and his decision to take this struggle public.
12: I think it was about about this time a year ago. I think everyone has... You know, has ups and downs. You know, good days and bad days. But you know, I, I was just kind of going through a a hard time, and like it was kind of just like bad day after bad day after bad day, and I just really wasn't feeling myself. You know, I kind of lost a lot of motivation, lost a lot of energy. I didn't really have any desire to go out and spend time with with friends or family, and, and I don't I don't know. I just kind of realized something was up, and then I uh, you know I was, I was talking to my to my family, and uh, you know my parents you know suggested that I you know go and go and seek some help. You know, just just go see what I can do to. To feel better, and so I started meeting with, with the counselor. And I was diagnosed with mild depression and, and, and anxiety. And it wasn't necessarily an easy thing to do, but once I started informing myself about the whole situation and learning more about it, I was able to, to kind of understand, you know, what my mind was telling me, what my body's telling me, and able to get get help and, see, and get treatment and, and feel so much better.
0: We asked Tanner what inspired him to make his struggle known.
12: As I was going through the whole process, I realized. I wanted to use my platform and use my voice, you know, to to help others who are going through similar struggles, to let them know that they're not alone, that we, you know, that we're in this together, that we can that you can get help and you know feel better. So I just wanted to kind of use that platform that I have to to you know use my voice for for a good cause. I think, you know, one of, one of the biggest things that uh that motivated me was seeing Brandon Marshall, the receiver for the New York Giants, uh you know at at the pro level he was making a big, you know, he he continues to this day to make a big um, big stand for mental health, and he, he's a big advocate for it, and, and uh, he, he shared his experiences with it and wants to make a difference in that field. So seeing him do it inspired me and, and motivated me that even though mental health might not be a common popular topic among you know male football players, it's something that needs to be addressed. Uh, you know people don't need to be ashamed of it. I think there's a big stigma surrounding it. so seeing him and seeing what he did kind of you know inspired me to share my own story. to be able to 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 help others and make a difference in their lives.
0: And by the way, we know the role models that football players are, and they also have this macho identity they have to deal with. So doing something like this takes tremendous courage uh, to reveal themselves and to be vulnerable. Tanner is an active and vocal member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. You know them as Mormons. He talked about his faith and how it helped him through the difficult times of his life.
12: I think my faith and, and my membership as a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter Day Saints it, it it helped me to be honest because I know I was in a safe place. You know, I knew I was in a, a place where I wouldn't be judged. You know, where I'd be you know, loved and accepted for for who I am. You know, flaws and all, regardless of you know what's going on. There's there's help and there's resources available that the church that the church provides. And then and then also just just my faith in general. You know, just it's helped me because I know that you know that uh you know through through difficulties and through trials we can be strengthened you know i think uh that one of the, that's one of the biggest things i've learned through my faith in god and, and 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 by going to church is that trials come but we can be strengthened and and made better and um and i think this this trial has definitely helped me become a better person you know it's helped me become more sympathetic and and more understanding and it's helped me rely on my family members and friends that you know, that I, that I go to church with, is, and it's just nice knowing that I'm not alone. You know, I'm not alone in this struggle that uh, I have had my faith, family members, and, and things to, you know, to, to help me get through, this, through the trial, and, then, and also the trial just strengthens me as a person in general.
0: And we hear that time and again here on Our American Stories, the power of faith and the positive power of faith in people's lives, and we don't mind sharing that with you here on this show. Back when he was a high school quarterback, Tanner attended the famous Elite 11 camp. Tanner was the co-MVP of that camp, sharing the honor with last year's first overall draft pick, Jameis Winston. Before committing to BYU, Tanner was ranked as the third best pro-style quarterback of his class. Tanner gave up these prospects to go on a two-year mission trip in Chile. We asked him about this decision.
12: But for me, the decision was easy because I just I had made that decision as a young as a young kid, you know, it, it it had always been my goal and my plan to serve a mission and to be able to, you know, dedicate myself to serving others, dedicate myself to to going and and helping other people, and uh, and not worrying so much about myself, but you know, first and foremost, serving God and serving and you know, serving others. And so, when that time came, to you know, to to decide if I was going to you know stay and play football or or take a two year pause and go on the mission, I already knew what I wanted to do because I knew what the right thing to do was and so yeah i mean it's it's not necessarily the easiest thing in the world you know it's 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 hard you know you kind of get out of shape you kind of get rusty and um you know it's not it's not easy to come back and, and get back into you know into football playing shape and be ready to play in games but i wouldn't trade it for the world i mean the, the lessons that i learned there and the experiences i had are you know were life-changing and unforgettable while it may have taken me on a different path than most, you know, college football quarterbacks, I'm, I'm grateful for the experience that I had, and, and uh, it's definitely shaped me and into who I am today.
0: We asked Tanner if he wanted to share any stories from that mission trip, and he told us about a little boy in a Dallas Cowboy jersey. You
12: know, this this family that that we met, it, it, was, it was kind of funny that they, one of the their children was wearing a Dallas Cowboys shirt, and he had no idea who the Dallas Cowboys were. You know, they don't they don't really follow football down there in Chile. They follow soccer and so i just started talking to him about uh his dallas Cowboys shirt and then we, we started um chatting with the family and became super close friends with them and and, and you know we still stay still in contact with them to this day so it was just i don't know it was just a cool cool experience for me to just kind of using using it started you know it all started with football and then dallas cowboys and just talking about that and then that you know one thing led to, led to the next and you know now here we are good friends and they've been able to change their lives and feel happier and feel better and just something that's a really, really cool experience that stuck with me.
0: Tanner went on to describe how his experience in Chile changed his outlook on mental health.
12: Throughout this whole mental health conversation, you know, I, I've been, I've been asked, you know, what, what can you do to, 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 you know, to help yourself feel better, to, you know, to combat it, and, and what, you know, what are some of the remedies that you use to feel better? And for me, one of the best things for me that that helps me is is serving others and service because you know one of the happiest times of my life was was the mission was was when I was when, when I was in chile because i was just totally focused on serving others and not worried about myself or my problems or what i was going through and when you when you help other people you just feel good about yourself you feel good you feel happy and so i try to like you know replicate that now obviously obviously it's a lot different but i just just by doing Going out of my way to look for opportunities to help to serve—it helps a lot, and it makes you feel you know so much better. So that's one of the best you know experiences I had in as far as you know finding true happiness.
0: And finally, we asked Tanner if he had anything to say to those young college students who've planned or have thought about or pondered suicide in the past year.
12: If I had a, if I had any advice for for students or anyone who's you know struggling with depression or having suicidal thoughts, I would just tell them that you're not alone, that, uh, there's help there. There's healing that, that you can find and you can, that you can have And there's nothing to be ashamed of. It's okay to talk about it. It's okay to go see a counselor. It's okay to, to take medication if necessary. And, and, uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's something that should be taken seriously. And it's something that, uh, that a lot of people struggle with and it's so much easier to take care of when you're when you're not ashamed of it. It's so much easier to take care of it when, when you can accept it and go and get help. Every every life is meaningful and important, and and uh, re- regardless of the struggles that we all face, you can we can get help and, and be able to to feel better. And um, so I think that's the advice I would give the give to them is that there's treatment available, there's help, and uh, it's something that that can be taken care of.
0: Yep, You're not alone and there's nothing to be ashamed of And here on Our American Stories We cover every kind of story My beautiful niece almost three years ago This summer uh, Took her life We didn't know the depths of her depression And so we cover these stories Because they happen They're real And well as Tanner said If we can make you feel less alone And not ashamed or unashamed um, That could prevent or perhaps Stop the loss of life This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories, Tanner Mangum's story. More after these messages. And this is our American stories, and we love music here on the show, and we love history. And that's why this is our favorite segment. And Jesse brings us this week in music history.
11: This week in music history 1964, Louie Louie by the Kingsman was number one in the States. Do I, do I. the record was actually banned by a handful of U.S. radio stations because of its indecipherable lyrics which were rumored to contain some naughty words. In 1964 an outraged parent wrote to Robert Kennedy, the then Attorney General, alleging that the lyrics of Louie Louie were obscene. Then the FBI decided to get involved in 1965 by getting their hands on a copy and after four months of investigation concluded that the song could not be interpreted and that it was unintelligible at any speed. And in 1968, Johnny Cash played a show which was recorded for his forthcoming live album at Folsom Prison near Sacramento, California in front of 2,000 inmates. When released, the lead single, Folsom Prison Blues, an update of his 1956 hit, became one of the most famous recordings of his career.
13: I bet there's rich folks eating in a fancy dining car. They're probably drinking coffee and smoking big cigars. Well, I know I had it coming. I know I can't be free. But those people keep moving, and that's what tortures me.
6: And in
11: 1967, the Jimi Hendrix Experience recorded Purple Haze at Delane Lee Studios in London. (laughs) Hendrix later stated that Purple Haze was about a dream that he had had, and that he was walking under the sea. In the dream, he said that Purple Haze surrounded him, engulfed him, and got him lost. It was a traumatic experience, but in his dream, his faith in Jesus saved him. In fact, the original lyrics written by Hendrix were... Purple Haze, Jesus Saves. (laughs)
9: And in
6: 1974,
11: the Steve Miller Band was at number one on the U.S. singles chart with The Joker, the group's first of three number ones. Here's Steve Miller. The Joker was um, a, a song that saved my career.
7: It was my seventh album with Capitol Records. They didn't care about what I was doing at all. And um, I made the record in a couple of weeks and I turned it in and I went out and did a 60 city tour. And the last thing I said to him was, like, um, uh, you know, try and have some albums in the stores and the cities that I'm actually sure. working in. Yeah. You know, it was always that kind of a fight, you know. And uh, I went out, and it was like a viral, like when things go viral today, that's what The Joker did. And uh, when I came back, I had the number one single, finally, after 11 years of, of recording and trying to, you know, make uh, hit singles. I finally had it, and and uh, that, that gave me the... Uh, finances you know to like improve my my sound system and it gave me a bigger audience and so what happened was i went from the joker to playing the filmer auditorium to playing the paramount and the fox theater to playing hockey arenas to playing arenas to football stadiums in two years well
8: since my baby left me well i find a new place to dwell well it's down at the end of a
11: and in 1935, born this week in music history, Elvis Presley, the king of rock and roll, he had his first number one in 1956 with the U.S. number one and U.K. number two single, Heartbreak Hotel.
8: Oh, though it's is crowded, you still can find some room for broken-hearted lovers to cry their
11: in Presley went on to have over 100 U.S. and U.K. top 40 singles from 56 to 2006. Presley is one of the most celebrated and influential musicians of the 20th century with an estimated record sales of around 600 million units worldwide. Also born this week in music history in 1947, singer, songwriter, and actor David Bowie. His first UK Top 40 single was 1969's Space Oddity, which became a UK number one in 1975, plus over 50 other UK Top 40 hits, including five number ones. Bowie has also scored two US number one singles, with the 1975 hit Fame and 1983's Let's Dance. His music and stagecraft significantly influencing popular music during his lifetime. His record sales, estimated at 140 million worldwide, made him one of the world's best selling music artists. Bowie died from liver cancer at his New York home on this very same week that he was born. 1944, born this week in music history, Jimmy Page, the guitarist for Led Zeppelin. The band's fourth album, released in 1971, featuring the rock classic "Stairway to Heaven," sold over 37
8: million copies alone. Here's Jimmy Page talking about his early days as a self-taught studio musician. Well, you know, the discipline of being a studio musician was really, was really quite um, you know, sort of strict, really. Uh, and if you messed up, you wouldn't be seen again. So I, you know, I was seen regularly and uh, it got to the point where I, I, I realised that I needed to learn to read music and so that's what I did, so I, 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 I understand that part but I wasn't actually schooled if you like, You know, I had, to, I had to sort of teach myself but the value of being able to read music meant that you could write notation I started playing just really basic chords, strumming basic chords but it was the instrument itself that, that, that really uh, uh, you know attracted me to so many different forms of of music where the guitar was employed so um, so that, that that sort of went across, you know, sort of course sort country blues to to flamenco to to rockabilly guitar to you know right, right through to right through all these various genres and I guess I just sort of got my own sort of style from that and um, I must say that if I, if I was recording, I'd pay a lot of attention to what the guitar sound was. Well, actually, I was doing a lot of writing, so I'd sort of know what guitar, electric guitar sound I was going to apply to that. We don't need
6: no education. And in
8: 1980,
11: Pink Floyd released Another Brick in the Wall Part Two in the United States. The single peaked at number one in both the U.S. and U.K. charts, giving Pink Floyd their very first and only number one hit single. It went on to number one in many other countries, including Australia, Germany, and Italy. You can hear our in-depth coverage of Pink Floyd's Another Brick in the Wall at OurAmericanNetwork.org. And that's this week in music history. For Our American Stories, I'm Jesse Edwards.
0: American Stories. And now it's time for our This Day in History series. As always, brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College. And if you can't get to Hillsdale, Hillsdale will come to you. They now have 16 terrific courses available online for you to take alone with your family. And it covers everything from the Constitution to the Federalist Papers. There's a great course on economics. It's on free market economics. It's fabulous. And of course, One of their latest entries, The Course on C.S. Lewis. It's just incredible. Go to hillsdale.edu to catch all of that. And this day in history, today's version, well, it's centered around a man we've spent quite a bit of time on, and it's Henry Ford. We did it this day in history on the world's first moving assembly line. And that's what Ford really did. He didn't invent the automobile. He just brought it to the American public. He brought the prices down. By the, way, by the way, he also brought wages up. Remarkable. By the way, that's what free market capitalism and innovation can do. It can change the world. Well, for this particular day, what a story. The oldest vehicle in the Motorsports Hall of Fame is the famous Henry Ford 999 Racer from 1902. Although it is not the first car race car ever built, it is certainly the first car to rise to the status of legend. The car is equipped with only one seat and the mechanic was often kept busy oiling bearings and making adjustments while the car was being driven. The role more closely resembled that of an active sidecar acrobat than that of a riding mechanic. Here is the story behind Henry Ford's land speed record.
1: What's next? big things things you never saw coming so buckle your tool belt here comes the all-new ford f-150 the first and only pickup that lets you do this and this and this all wrapped in a high-strength military-grade aluminum alloy body so you can do the most of this the all-new ford f-150
9: the future
6: of tough
13: Ford Motor Company made history on this day. And I'm not talking about its F-150 being named Truck of the Year at the North American International Auto Show.
8: Some groundbreaking features available on the new F-150 include integrated loading ramps for easy loading of motorcycles and ATVs and a 360-degree camera view that creates a bird's-eye view of what's around the vehicle.
13: Today marks the day in 1904 when founder Henry Ford personally set a new land speed record of 91.37 miles per hour. The record was set with a four-wheel vehicle, dubbed the 999, on a frozen ice track that was carved into Lake St. Clair in New Baltimore, Michigan. The 999 was named after the Empire State Express number 999, which was an American steam locomotive that famously set a world speed record of 112.5 miles per hour in 1893. making it the first man-made vehicle to exceed 100 miles per hour under its own propulsion. Henry Ford collaborated with cycling champion Tom Cooper and a team of several assistants to create the vehicle in 1902. It ran on a 50 horsepower, 18.8 liter four-cylinder engine with a wooden chassis, though there was no body
6: or hood.
12: There really hasn't been much changes to the internal combustion motor. The valve goes open, the fuel and air comes in, and the spark plug fires off, and it blows up, you know. They've made it more efficient, but nothing has changed. Air goes in,
13: air goes out. There was also no rear suspension, and the steering was controlled by a crude pivoting metal bar, similar to a straight handlebar on a mountain bike, but with upright hand grips at the ends to operate it. The total cost of the project was $5,000. Ford's great-grandson, Bill Ford Jr., the company's executive chairman, recently reflected on the speed record during an appearance on WJR 760 with Paul W. Smith and expressed pride in his family's dedication to the auto industry. On this day, your great-grandfather, Henry Ford, set the speed record. Did you know that? I did know that. This is the day in 1904, Henry Ford set a land speed record of 91.37 miles per hour on the frozen surface of Michigan's Lake St. Clair. I have a feeling that whatever you announce later... It will go a little bit faster than 91 miles per hour.
10: It might, but i tell you, it's within that same spirit. I mean, we were born on a racetrack, our company was. And, uh, you know, and so, uh, you know, performance has always been a big deal for us.
13: This uh, automobile will probably not be dubbed the 999, but you never know, because you know the day and the history. I do. I do believe it will not have a wooden chassis. I do not believe that it will be without a hood. (laughs)
10: <laughs> Can you imagine doing that uh, this time of year on Lake St. Clair? <laughs> no! With, uh, you know, actually, uh, you know, most of the land speed records right up to World War II were set on Lake St. Clair. That was the, the venue of choice. No kidding. Yeah, I did not know that.
13: Henry Ford traveled one mile in 39.4 seconds for the record. But it was broken within a month at Ormond Beach, Florida by a driver named William K. Vanderbilt. Even so, the publicity surrounding Ford's achievement... Was valuable to the auto pioneer, who in June of the previous year had incorporated the Ford Motor Company, which would eventually go on to become one of America's big three automakers. Henry Ford's Land Speed Record. This day in history.
0: And by the way, Popular Mechanics rates Henry Ford's 999 record in their top 10 list of Land Speed Records because, as they say, quote, remaining in the record books was not the goal. But the precedent is set in the world of automotive ingenuity. It cannot be understated. And now it's time for our favorite, favorite segment from Professor Steven Goldberg, retired chairman of the sociology department at City College. His daydream segment. Let's take a listen to the disclaimer. These are all real
9: daydreams that I have had over the past seven decades. They are not written in the sense that one paces the floor at five in the morning trying to write a daydream about X, Y, or Z. These daydreams all simply arrived fully formed, poppied into my head unexpectedly. That's the wonderful thing about daydreams. They require no
0: talent at all. And here's the daydream.
9: While I am not a political reporter, I have for some reason been assigned to cover a major political meeting. Not only is President-elect Andrew Green present, I am, I'm somehow find myself alone in a room with him shortly uh, before the meetings are to begin. It turns out that my worries about what kind of chit-chat I am to make with the man who is soon to be President of the United States Um, were unnecessary because the president-elect asks me, to my astonishment, whether I have uh, any suggestions for him. What? I'm going to give advice to the soon-to-be president of the United States? What do I do now? What else can I do? Give it a shot. So I say to the president, Mr. President, my knowledge of politics is infinitesimal. But another thought occurs to me. Every president is, of course, um, a human being and vulnerable to all the flaws and faults that other human beings are vulnerable to. Now, it occurs to me that the flaw to which a president might be most vulnerable is that it could go to his head. Uh, He is, after all, the president of the United States. So uh, might I be bold enough to offer a possible um, uh, defense against uh, your inadvertently letting your position have this effect? Pretend you're about to be uh, on a TV show about five randomly selected people discussing uh, their jobs. And randomness being what it is, uh, you have been chosen as one of the selected. You are beside yourself with excitement and anticipation, boy, am I going to look good? You're thinking, after all, I am the Mr. Number One, the top of the heap. I am, I guess I'm going to look pretty, pretty good compared to whoever else they happen to uh, manage to come to the show. Stage manager says, five, four, three, two, one. We're on. At this point, you, the president-elect, are beside yourself with, uh, with self-satisfaction. This is going to be so great, you're thinking. After all, I am el hombre popular numero uno. And just to think, it's all so well-deserved. I've got to admit, I feel uh, a bit uh, <clears throat> uh, sorry Uh, for all those those, uh, other people um, uh, having to be compared to me, the moderator. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen. Today we have a very interesting show about people and uh, their work. And without further ado, um, to, to our first guest, Mr. Duffy. Mr. Duffy. Well, um... Uh, my uh, name is Timothy Duffy. Uh, I'm a fireman, um, and running into burning buildings to save people is my business. Moderator. Thanks very much. And now to our second guest, Mr. Green. Mr. Green. Um, well, um, uh, well, my, my name is uh, Andrew Green, and uh, I have an office
6: job.
0: This is Our American Stories. Steven Goldberg, retired chairman of sociology, department head at City College. This is Our American Stories.